And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me on the phone today is Dr. Kevin Sherrick. Good to be with you, Dan. Well, Kevin, it's great to have you here. You know, before the broadcast, we were talking a little bit about this very matter of being surprised by Jesus. And um, there are some characteristics in Jesus' life of his person that perhaps we've not typically considered. And uh, when we're confronted by these aspects, it's almost like a surprise. You say, wow, that's in the Scripture? So that's what we want to talk about today. Just to get us started, maybe what we could do is talk about Jesus and how he treated his parents as a boy and growing up. And uh, maybe you could help us get started on that. Sure, I think that's a good place to start. I, I guess in one sense we could say that we're surprised by Jesus's humanity and the sheer um, ordinary um, little vulnerability sometimes of his humanity in the scriptures. And so we have, we're confronted by a Jesus who is fully um, human and fully a first century Jewish boy who's obedient to his parents and though he was the son of God in, in flesh, needed to express that human obedience to his parents, even though at, at, by the time he's 12 or so and they find him in the temple, um, it's clear that he's, he recognizes that he has some sort of a transcendent mission and a unique relationship to his Father in Heaven. Um, and so he's obedient to his parents, but as he moves out into adulthood, into, the, into his messianic calling, you can see that he, in a sense, let's say, um, perhaps distances himself. You know, he'll say, who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? Because he's coming to redefine family. Uh, he's coming to establish the new family, the new humanity, which is the body of Christ, the Church. So he obeys his parents, but he also recognizes that family can be an obstacle or a hindrance to the kingdom, and he will not fundamentally define himself other than in relationship to the community of believers who are, whoever hears the Word of God, that person is my mother or my brother or my sister. Mm -hmm. And I think that's surprising to us. It's surprising that he has to obey on the one hand. It's surprising that when he does obey, there's a kind of um, distance he puts between himself and his mother and his own earthly family. Yeah. Now, when he comes to earth... We're told he, he lays aside his glory, and sometimes it's hard for me, at least, to appreciate who he really was when he was here on earth. I mean, he, he was, as we say, he was fully human, right? Yes, he was, he was fully human. <laughs> he, uh, he, he, um, it's probably not strictly accurate, although I understand your point that he laid aside his glory, but what we want to say, I think, is that he emptied his glory into a servant form of existence. Hmm. And that in that servant form of existence, in that humble form of existence, we still nevertheless see the glory of God, yeah. but we see it in, because, in, you know, John will say, we saw his glory, we beheld his glory. <laughs> and he's speaking, he's speaking of the incarnate Christ. But it's not the unmediated, direct vision of the glory of God. It's now the glory of God is embodied in a servant form. And that is, um, that's quite radical and quite shocking. Uh, I do think, um, you know, most Christians are, are, 
have an easier time, I think, with the divinity of Christ, believing yes. that he's a divine figure, than they do with believing that he's really genuinely, fully human and suffers the limitations, uh, the temptations, the, the, the weakness, the mortality of human flesh in, you know, in his mm. earthly life. Now, what about, what about prayer? We see in Scripture Jesus praying. Did he need to pray? Yes, he needed to pray because he needed to trust his Father. Mm. Right? He he is um, he is God and man, and with respect to his, or even better, he is God as a man, mm. and as a man, he is in need of trusting and listening and obeying his Father. In fact, um, in Hebrews chapter two, it, it tells us that. You know, the one who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that is us, all have one nature or all have one Father. Mm -hmm. So Jesus, in a sense, Jesus, of course, is the unique Son of God, and he calls God Father. But he shares our nature, makes us his brethren. And the text goes on to say he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And then the text quotes uh, from the Psalms, and it has... The ascended Christ saying, I will tell of your name, the name of God, to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Mm. So that's, that's a picture of Jesus, the great high priest, speaking of his brothers to his father, and in the midst of the congregation with his brothers, praising his father. Yeah, so we can say then that Jesus worshipped. Jesus worshipped and in fact does worship. Mm. That's part of that's part of his ministry as the great high priest, and I think it's precisely the fact. Right here, we're at a point where I think um, modern Christians are our weakness in grasping the fullness of Jesus's humanity uh, comes to light. It is true um, that Jesus is God. It is gloriously true, and it's true that we pray to Him, mm. and it's true that He is worshipped, and that we worship Him. So, in a sense. Um, what I like to say uh, to my congregation here is, you can you face Jesus. Jesus is sit- seated on his throne in heaven, and he faces you, and you worship him. But if he is genuinely your high priest, your brother, your forerunner, then in, in some sense you have to turn Jesus around in your mind so that his back is to you and you're behind him, and then in and with and through him, but especially with him, you are then offering worship and praise to the Father. Mm. Because he presents you as his brother or sister, and with you, he sings praise in the great congregation. On this particular passage in Hebrews 2, John Calvin says that Christ is the chief conductor of our heavenly hymns. Mm. So he leads the heavenly worship. So it's, it's crucial to the, to the priesthood of Jesus that when we think of the ascension and we think of him assuming his throne in heaven, we don't allow his humanity to thin out, if you will, as it goes through the atmosphere, right. to, to sort of just disappear so that there's purely a divine Jesus on a throne. There's a man in heaven. There's a human body in heaven, scarred, but risen and glorified, and that body uh, is, is, is the body of Christ. We partake of that body in the Eucharist, and through that humanity 
And with that humanity, we worship God. So it's very important that Jesus prayed, that he obeyed, that he trusted the Father, and that he, in fact, worships the Father, because he takes our our frail and our weak and our faltering and our defective and defiled worship, and he purifies it in his own self and presents it and us acceptable in him as holy worship to the Father. That's fantastic. I'm just looking at the clock here. I see that we're already up against a break. Um, Today we're talking about Surprised by Jesus, and um, we're looking at some of the scriptural descriptions of Jesus, and maybe some of these just haven't sunk in before. We're talking about them today. I'm sure that we'll not cover the full, complete set of them, but uh, this gives you a taste of what's coming in the second half of this program. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. On the phone with me today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt. We've been talking about some of the aspects of Jesus that perhaps you don't always think about when you open your Bible and just read his his life and his works. And one of these aspects, Kevin, you mentioned right before the break was the fact that in heaven there is a man. Let's pick it up from there, and we'll continue to ask more questions. This is very important because... If, as I said, you allow the humanity of Jesus to sort of thin out, you know, in your imagination, your theological imagination, if you will, in your vision of him as he ascends, then you're going to end up with this divine Jesus in heaven and you on earth and you trying to worship him acceptably Mm -hmm. or please him or, uh, and, and you miss the fact that Jesus is the mediator. He stands on your side of the divide between God and man takes up your humanity, is made like you in every respect, so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. And high priests go into the holy place, 
with their backs to the people, because the people follow them in the New Covenant anyway. Mm-hmm. In the Old Covenant, of course, the high priest went into the Holy Place once a year on the Day of Atonement. Mm-hmm. But in the New Covenant, um, we follow. So that, that humanity of Jesus was not only important in his obedient life and in his crucifixion, and in his resurrection, but it's important in his ascension, and it's important in his ongoing priestly ministry. He, he is um, interceding for us. Mm-hmm. He's our advocate before the Father, and he is these things as the one who wears our humanity. Uh, and that means he's got a human nature which is like ours in every respect, sin accepted. Yeah, I was just going to say that reminds me of that Bible verse, that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Right, and, this, and, and the writer uh, to the Hebrews grounds his great sympathy with our weaknesses in, in, that, um, in that reality. And I, I do think uh, this is one of the things that separates Christianity, frankly, from world religions, is that yes. the Christian God has become incarnate and become man, and thus exercises a kind of sympathy that's not just sympathy from outside, or Mm. sympathy from on high, but sympathy from within the weakness and frailty of our humanity. Now, you've mentioned sympathy, and as we read through the Gospels, we certainly see Jesus, while he was here on earth, showing sympathy for the downcast. He shows sympathy for the repentant sinner, Yet sometimes he seems to despise the quote-unquote religious. Why would that be? Well, let's take your first part of your point. Certainly he shows sympathy for the downcast and sympathy for the marginalized, sympathy for the repentant, sympathy for the outcast in Israel, because that's part of his great, great compassion. But Mm. But that same holy love of God is going to oppose the pride of the religiously self-satisfied. So it's, it's the same integrity of his holy love and, his, and of his mm-hmm. genuine goodness and compassion, which shows sympathy for the downcast, but yes, yet necessitates uh, judgment on the unrepented religious leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Jesus is a very um, full-orbed and gritty picture, his humanity in the Gospels. He weeps, and you know, he eats, he drinks, uh, to the point where some people accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Mm-hmm. He, he hangs around, has lots of meals. One scholar says Jesus is, literally eats and drinks his way through the Gospels. Hmm. And, and this is because these, these meals are, are types, if you will, of the great coming feast of the kingdom of God. And so he has a rich set of relationships. He weeps when Lazarus dies. He's, he's got close friends, disciples that are closer than others. It's a full a full picture. He, he can get genuinely, righteously, without sin, angry. I mean, he sits down. He sits down and gets a cord and builds a whip with his own hands <laughs> to drive the money changers out of the temple. This is no plastic figure. This is a full-blown human life in all of its complexity that's there, and that complexity includes a kind of um, anger, righteous anger at the religious establishment because, precisely because it was oppressing the people. It wasn't lifting a finger to, mm-hmm. to you know, it was laying burdens on them and not lifting a finger to, to lift those burdens. Mm. I remember in the Gospels there was one time, maybe more than one, but believing parents would would bring their children to Jesus to, to bless the children, 
And they were, they said, I think it was the disciples said, no, don't do that. Can you help us understand that picture of Jesus, that snapshot? Sure. I mean, I think this shows, it doesn't, it, it shows not only that Jesus loved the little children, as the song says, which is, <laughs> which is true, but it, it shows that Jesus is um, uh, a man, if you will, who is a man of the covenant and who lives in terms of the covenant. Mm-hmm. And in, in the Abrahamic covenant, the children of the covenant were given the sign of circumcision. They were considered to be the property underneath the blessing and protection of God. They, the, the covenant benefits and blessings were assumed to be on the seed of Abraham until the seed of Abraham rebelled or renounced the covenant. And so Jesus' view of children, the children that are brought to him, believe, children of, 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 of believing parents that are in the covenant, is not that these children are neutral or sinners or in some state where they're, they're not accepted. He receives them and pronounces the benediction of God on them. And so his blessing not only indicates that they are blessed, his blessing confers blessedness on them because that's what the word of Jesus does. Mm-hmm. And so I do think it changes the way you view children. I, I think mm-hmm. you cannot view children in the covenant as wicked sinners alienated from Christ until they make some decision. They're, they're viewed, well, let me put it that way, they, 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 that, that you can say that, but that's not all you have to, can say. Right. You must say at the same time that they stand under the covenant blessing and promise of God. Mm-hmm. Now, this um, picture in the Gospels of, of parents bringing their children to Christ and Jesus blessing them, I think you mentioned that this blessing actually accomplished something. Well, yes, I, mm. I think that's right. I think it, mm. it places God's name and God's benediction on them. When Jesus places mm. his hands on these children and pronounces them blessed, he, he's the great high priest who's putting the name and, and the favor of God upon their lives. Mm. Hmm. And so his attitude toward children is not just a sentimental one, right? Of yeah. uh, Wasn't it cute? Jesus loves little kids. Um, it's a profoundly theological attitude that says a lot, and frankly, it goes to the question of of the baptism of children and the mm-hmm. way children are to be viewed in light of the covenant. Sure, but that that's for another show, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also struck. Um, you touched on it briefly of, of the people that Jesus would hang out with, as it were, hang out. He didn't seem to worry about how it would look to other religious figures that um, he was showing mercy to a woman caught in adultery or that he would hang out with some poor person and help them. Um, what can we learn from Jesus as we, as we view him and, and these examples of him hanging out with certain kinds of people? Well, one of the things we can learn is that we have to be very wary about religious establishments, mm-hmm. that they can, they can be the generators of great hypocrisy, uh, and that the human heart is such that um, it loves a kind of extrinsic religiosity. Um, and thus, we're always, as fallen people, missing the forest you know, for the trees, yeah. And I, so that's one thing we can learn is the danger of our own institutions. Um, but the other thing that we learn from here is just the heart of God, the compassion of God for the least of these, for the marginalized, for that the gospel really yeah. is for those who are sick, 
mm-hmm. and for 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 sinners. And um, you know, the Apostle Paul, even toward the end of his life, um, in the pastoral epistle, says, um, "Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost." Yeah. And so, a part of it is. Um, eschewing a kind of self-righteousness that we're better than these people. I think this is a danger with middle-class American Christianity. We really are very easily sucked into the notion that the church is for clean-cut, decent, honorable, mm-hmm. hard-working, honest people. Mm-hmm. And other sorts of people, well, that's not, the church isn't for them. Now, we would yeah. never express it quite that crassly, but that ethos can come across in a lot of communions. Mm-hmm. In other words, if Jesus was on some of the streets in Kingston, in fact, I drove past a street the other day, and I immediately got a certain feeling because I think a drug deal was going on, and some young men were just hanging out with nothing to do and, you know, lots of time on their hands, um, that sort of thing. Uh, he um, He would want to reach out to these people. Sure. Yeah, that's right. He, 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 <laughs> he hung out with people analogous yeah. to that in his first century context. That's um, the best way to put it, right? Right. So I, I think um, it's safe to say that it's all consistent with the Great Commission that he would later give to his church. Right, and, and it's consistent with the descent, the humility, the trajectory of the Incarnation itself. Mm. Right? He embodies himself in our humanity so that he can get underneath our need and shoulder our burden mm. and, and stand where humanity is broken and fractured and weak and paralyzed and enslaved. Enslaved. This, this is part of his great, great um, compassion to, to lift up the downcast. To, he looks upon the multitudes and he, he, he thinks they're, they're, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Right? Mm-hmm. He sighs and he weeps and he moans as he, as he heals, as he confronts the demonic. So it, it's, it's, it's not enough that he just shares our estate in some legal way. He has to, he has to sort of get into the stream of history that's carrying us over the cliff and get underneath our dead bodies and lift them up and get them yeah. to the shore. Yeah. And so that that's that's part of his great uh, kingly royal love. Yeah, I'd be remiss if we didn't cover the the new birth that's spoken of in the New Testament. Um, seems the heart of Jesus constantly is pushing us in the direction of our need to have covenant fellowship and love and communion uh, with the Triune God of the Scriptures. Can you talk a little bit? about the new birth in the, in the few minutes uh, remaining today? Well, sure. Jesus is not just a social worker, right? He's not, mm. he's not just um, about meeting human need, though he does a good bit of that. Um, when he heals, he heal, those, those, those healings are signs of the coming kingdom. Uh, and when he uh, does acts of compassion, like multiplying the, the, the loaves and fishes, those are signs of, of the one who will bring in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be abundance and there will be no need mm. or no want. And so the miracles of Jesus are not just um, ad hoc things he's doing to meet a need that arises. 
though of course they are that in some minimalistic sense, they're signs of the kingdom. And the kingdom can only be entered into by being born again. This is Jesus' own yes. testimony. So Jesus is, in many ways, first and foremost, as an incarnate man, a preacher. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news. He says at his very inaugural address in Nazareth in Luke 4. And then he goes on to talk about healing and uh, opening blind eyes and setting the captives free. So he goes about proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so there's, there's nothing that we said here today about his sympathy or his humanity or his love for, for the poor, the downcast, or the marginalized, which in any way um, uh, prejudices us against a firm evangelical belief in the new birth. In fact, it presupposes it. Mm-hmm. Right, Jesus' good works are the good works of the one who has come to proclaim or to preach the kingdom of God and to call men to repentance, to a change of heart and mind, because in that way, you know, they will enter the kingdom that he is bringing. He embodies and he's bringing. That's beautiful. And I'm looking at the clock. I see we're already out of time for the program here today. And uh, thank you very much, Kevin, for joining us today here on A Plain Answer. Oh, thanks for having me, Dan. It was a pleasure. Um, This entire broadcast is up on our website. Check it out. It's found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Perhaps you have a pastoral question uh, that you would like uh, routed through to Pastor Kevin. We'd be willing to do that. And our email address is ministry at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. That's ministry at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. And a reminder to join us again next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Thank you.